The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 71 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on the show on my own, and not my president of past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to or a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So before we get started, I want to remind our listeners, you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub. Dot com. So the numbers are in, and January 2019 was an awesome month for Task Force 7 Radio. Thanks so much for listening to the show and, and supporting the show, folks. I really appreciate it. Man, the numbers are, are up across the board on listenership, on social media, and also thank you for all the kind notes and words of support and gratitude uh, for bringing the importance and criticality of cybersecurity to the public light. I mean, that's just, they really make me feel good when I get those notes. Um, they're very nice. And if someone takes out the time to actually send me a note like that, urging me to keep going and building the relationship with the show. Uh, it's just great. I mean, most of the time, obviously, they come from the true professionals out there who truly understand that cybersecurity is a threat to our national security and our way of life. And that cybersecurity is a responsibility for everyone not just the uh, few million people across the planet that are protecting us on a daily basis. So, you know, I get tons of email, folks. I do my best to read them all and respond to every single one. Sometimes it takes me a while, but I eventually, I get through all of them. So I really appreciate it. As always, we had a great episode last week with cybersecurity legal expert and CNN analyst and contributor, Dr. Adriana Sanford, talking about global privacy issues and how the tumultuous environment is affecting the way big U.S. tech companies are doing business in Europe and other parts of the world. So we particularly delved into the way France is approaching privacy and compliance and what other countries are, are, are doing and I guess some of the countries that are really have some of the more, comp, uh, a larger number of complaints against US companies uh, compared to their peer countries that have the same type of laws. So that was kind of interesting discussion. It's basically, you know, who's interpreting the law a certain way, who's, you know, who's enforcing the law I guess, a certain way or, or um, more stricter in this, uh, I guess, uh, in this case. So it's not just for the people who work for international companies. Um, the show really gives domestic companies an outlook of what's to come down the road, you know, what they should be looking for in the near future and expecting in the near future and what they have to start doing to prepare themselves to be ready for this regulatory storm that is brewing uh, and that everyone is talking about on a, on a consistent basis. So Dr. Adriana Sanford, man, is she awesome? She's just awesome. I love having her on the show. She's the real deal, no doubt about it. You know, she's talking about some sophisticated topics here that a lot of people are overlooking. You know, a lot of people aren't talking about some of the things that she's speaking about. And she talks about them in a way that everyone can understand what's at stake. So I really appreciate that. So if you haven't heard the show yet, take a listen when you get a chance. Tune in to last week's episode of Task Force 7 Radio. That's episode number 70 with cybersecurity legal expert and CNN analyst and contributor, Dr. Adriana Sanford. Make sure you check out the TF7 podcast library on your favorite playback medium because we just dropped January's Encore episode like a bomb uh, a few weeks ago. 
And the episode's called Why Organizations Can't Patch Their Networks with my friend Kareem Tuba, the CEO of Kenneth Security. The Encore is doing really well. Uh, the episode is poised to be probably one of the top listened to Task Force 7 radio episodes in, in our history out of the 71 now that we have uh, up and running. And I kind of feel that's because of two things. One, Kareem's obviously really smart. He's you know, really intelligent and he speaks very well. And people like to listen to them. Then the number two thing is the commonality of the problem that we cover on that episode. And that's patching. Right? Patching vulnerabilities in a timely fashion. Having the flexibility and agility needed in your cybersecurity, VTM, and operations functions is essential to winning the cybersecurity battle professionals are fighting every day on your behalf. And because of the way the internet was built, right, and the way our applications and infrastructure tools have been built in the past, no one's immune to this. No one is immune to this challenge. So Kareem's wicked smart. He knows his business. He knows the telemetry and risk off the cuff. When you hear him opine about cybersecurity and the common lexicon of risk, it just makes a lot of sense. It just makes so much sense. He's able to reach a wider audience outside just the cybersecurity professionals because he speaks a language that most executives understand, and that's really cool, right? It's a true example of speaking the language of the business. So the encores have been a big hit with our audience, and it's been a lot of fun posting them and watching the reaction. That's Kareem Tuba, the CEO of Kenna Security, talking about why organizations can't patch their networks on the January 2019 episode of Task Force 7 Radio. Well, if you're listening to us live on Voice America right now, or maybe someone just sent you the link to this episode, you might be wondering how you can listen to all the previous Task Force 7 Radio episodes on playback. It's still the most common question I get, even after posting 70 episodes, probably because our audience is always growing, and which we're very excited to see. We always get excited to see those numbers keep going up and up. The trajectory is awesome. And I get the numbers from Voice America every Monday for the prior week, and so it's always a little bit of a thrill to you know, open up the email and see the report and uh, get their reactions to the different episodes that we post. Uh, it's just a lot of fun. So. We also have a new website. Task Force 7's got a new website. You can reach Task Force 7 Radio by going to tf7radio.com. The old website was taskforce7radio.com. It was sort of spelled out and kind of a pain in the neck to type into your keyboard. So we made it a little shorter and cleaner for you. So we're now at tf7radio.com. And once there, if you hit the subscribe tab, it will take you to the other eight playback mediums that TF7 Radio is currently aired on. And right there, if you go to those mediums, you can, you know, subscribe right on those. You can go to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. You know, we got player.fm, overcast.fm, listen notes, and then our home base at Voice America. It's really easy. Just go to tf7radio.com, uh, go to the subscribe button. It takes you to all the mediums. You can choose one, you know, find the medium you prefer. Maybe you just find one that you might like better than the one you use today. Who knows? And then you can subscribe right there. This way, uh, you get all the information, you get updates as they come out on a regular basis. So all in all, there's nine different options to get your TF7 radio fixed. We're everywhere, folks. You can't miss us. The easiest way to find us is just Google Task Force 7 Radio, and you'll get all your options. Check us out. TF7 Radio Playback at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, whatever you do, don't forget to subscribe. Subscribing is the way to go. So... We got another great show for you this week. I want to mix it up a little bit. I'm going to mix it up a little bit. I'm going to. I, I'm going to want. To, I want to have some fun. There's some news episodes out there. There's some that I want to cover. I don't want to talk about some current news events that have sort of hit the news in the in the last week. I mean, there's always a lot of cybersecurity stuff going on, but I like to do news sometimes uh, instead of specific subjects because uh, it's just kind of cool to uh, talk about this stuff. It's just a lot of fun. So let's dive into it. We got this this issue with the 190 million dollars in crypto that vanishes after the death of a, a crypto boss. Uh, there's a guy that runs a company that basically had the keys uh, and, and passwords uh, to the, the entire platform to uh, be able to access all this crypto. And apparently uh, his wife is saying that he's passed away uh, while on a trip uh, to India to open up an orphanage. And so uh, a lot of speculation about what's going on with that. <laughs> so it's a, it's, a, it's a crazy story. So we'll get into that a little bit. We're going to talk about the possibility of sec uh, security uh, around e-voting in America and, and, and abroad. And there's a country out there that's wants to, uh, that has implemented full-blown e-voting and how bug bounties plays into the possibility of this becoming more mainstream in America. 
Okay, so I think that's pretty interesting. We're also going to get into the idea of scare tactics used by vendors, uh, considering the absolutely horrible things that can happen to you if you're not uh, cybersecurity aware, and you have a very robust program with a lot of rigor, right? And if these types of tactics are effective, uh, we're going to break down what effect the government shutdown has had on the cybersecurity posture of various government agencies. And finally, we're going to be taking a harder look at fiscal security as an effective mitigating control moving into the future, and if we're not really paying enough attention to physical security in securing some of our uh, assets and some of our data and some of our assets. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to unpack all this for you and much, much more as I'm joined by my co-host of TS7 Radio and Chief Security Officer of BitGo, Mr. Thomas Pageler. Tom, how are you doing this evening? Great, man. Thanks for having me again, George. Hey, man, I appreciate you coming back. So, Dude, how about this story about this crypto boss passing away with the golden keys to this mass fortune of cryptocurrency? What's the deal with that? Uh, I don't know if you know this and some of the listeners. They're actually a, a BitGo customer. So, um, wow. a little bit about BitGo. We're, we're, yeah, you know this, George. We secure uh, yeah. funds, of uh, you know, crypto assets. And we have what's called a hot wallet and we have what we call cold wallets. And, and actually, there's a custodian in the cold, waters, cold wallets and uh, qualified custodian. What's important to know is this was hot wallets. That means that those are used for like online trading. And the idea there is that we hold one of the passwords and there's three. So then the user holds two. So the idea is you can't go transact if I steal, like let's say George, you're using BitGo, right? You're using us to trade. You sign up an account with us and someone gets your username, password. They can't, they can't sign anything on your behalf because they have to go through BitGo and they would fail on our side. So the idea is you use your key, our key, we write to the blockchain. Uh, we then tell you to store a uh, third key, which is the backup key. In case thing, everything goes wrong, you can't get a hold of us, anything happens, you always have two keys, you can go get your, your data. And we actually recommend some uh, key recovery services, we call them these independent uh, providers to do that. So there's really good controls around that. In this case, uh, this company managed their own uh, two keys and this individual who uh, has you know, allegedly passed away uh, did not give the password to anybody. So basically, these are locked up. You know, Epic, we only have one let's key. Let's backtrack for a second. Let's, let's just let our, our audience know what we're talking about. Basically, there's a CEO of a company called Quadriga. Yep, out of Canada. This, this, out of Canada. And the CEO's name is Gerald W. Cotton. And apparently, he was the only person who knew what the security keys and passwords were needed to access a whole wide variety of cryptocurrencies massing to about anywhere reportedly from 145 to 245 million dollars. I heard the, the most common number I heard was 190 million dollars. So apparently he passed away during a trip to India from Crohn's disease or complications of Crohn's disease uh, while he was traveling over there to an orphanage. Uh, the company made an announcement on Facebook on January 14th and it's been Oh, you know, it's just been crazy all over the news ever since because no one can access these hundreds of millions of dollars that apparently this one single individual had access to. And that's what you're referring to in terms of a single point of failure. Yeah. I mean, so like I said, Bitco, others, we, we provide what's called custodian cold, cold storage solutions where we hold all the keys. And like specifically at BitGo, where we have a trust, it's a, you know, regulated out of South Dakota, uh, uh, Sioux Falls. and it's qualified. So we have actual state regulators coming in, checking, making sure that we actually, you know, have the keys that we're doing the right practices around it, that we have the assets in, in, in custody, things like that. So it's, it doesn't allow for a single point of failure. And in, you know, in this case, uh, purported to be a death, but you know, this would prevent death, um, loss of things, um, you know, fraud, whatever it be. So if you're working with an exchange or anybody who has your assets, you should be asking, where are right. where's the data stored? It's crazy, and, right? You know, yeah. How, how do you get to it? I mean, you would ask this in any other world, right? If it was stock and stuff like that, I, I wouldn't say, oh, I, you know, I assume that your CEO is the only one with password, right? It's just insane. So, you know, <laughs> I highly recommend that people really ask about custodian solutions, and they need to really, you know, look at this and say, look, there's a lot of money in here, and just just too much stuff to go wrong. Right. Again, like I say, like you just want to make sure that you don't allow single points of failure. I mean, a natural disaster, whatever it be, you want to be able to recover those funds. And this is not what a hot wallet is intended to be used like. You know, this, this company clearly was not doing best practices and maintaining those keys. And, and customers should have been asking and, and continue to ask, you know, why this happened. 
So this, is, this, this story gets crazier and crazier, right? According to a New York Times article dated February 5th by Karen Zrak, in an affidavit, his widow, Jennifer K.M. Robertson, wrote that her husband had the business from an encrypted laptop or, or, run, or ran the business from an encrypted laptop, working mostly out of their home in Fall River, Nova Scotia. So she, apparently in the affidavit, Ms. Robertson did not know the password or recovery key and could not find them written down anywhere despite re repeated and diligent searches. I mean, this sounds ridiculous, right? Ms. Robertson said she also hired an expert to find the cryptocurrency in cold wallets stored offline with little success. So while other crypto exchanges have lost their clients' money, this appears to be the first one that has actually said it lost the keys to the accounts. Now, is it believable <laughs> that only one person on the planet had the keys to the kingdom of this size and importance? I mean, is, do you think this is commonplace in, in this market? I, I think this is why Bitco is offering qualified custodian and custodian. So it doesn't happen. You cannot have a situation where we allow you know, $200 million to be, you know, one password that one person has. And if you lose it, it's all gone. Right, you would it, think. Right? Yeah. It just, I mean, and everything you're reading just shows no matter what, it was really bad practice on this company, right? It was not properly established. You know, it's on a laptop. I mean, a laptop, who knows if it's backed up? Who knows what was going on? He's the only person who knew the password to that, knew the passwords to the assets. Um, you don't run a company off a single laptop. I mean, there's just so many breakdowns here. And I know that there's speculation out there, you know, did he really die? What really happened? I mean, it was, oh, yeah. Uh, you know, stuff like that. And honestly, I, I don't even want to like talk about that because, you know, unfortunately, maybe he did pass away, whatever, whatever happened, let's just say natural disaster, whatever. The point is, it was the poor setup in the beginning. And these are the kind of things, if you're going to be in the crypto space and you're going to be investing in these assets, especially because they can grow very quickly overnight. We've seen, you know, runs up really, really fast. You want to make sure that whoever is, holding that asset that, that is yours is following due diligence, you know, doing the right thing and, and you know, ask the questions, is this, you know, custodial, is, is this cold storage where someone else is holding the keys? Um, is there a check and balance? If you're doing it yourself, how are you doing it? How do you know that they're separated? How do you know multiple individuals come in there? How do you know if there's a, you know, I don't know, Canada has a cold spell or something like that and they can't get to them. Can they get to them somewhere else? And also like security around that. How do you know that, you know, because you start doing these things, the security is in place. And that's why I recommend looking at custodial solutions that do this every day that are regulated by state entities. Obviously I'm using Bitco as an example because it's what we do, right. but there's others who also do it. You can look them up and, and find those. I think that's just, you know, follow best practices like you would anywhere else. I would never go into a bank and say, hey, uh, as long as your CEO has the, the only key available, I'm good putting $100 million in that vault. No way, right? No doubt. No doubt. I mean, you know, we don't want to speculate here on the show, but there is a lot of, uh, <laughs> I mean, the swirl is out of control out there. Quadriga's platform went offline on January 28th, and all these frustrated investors just took the Reddit and Twitter and went nuts, right? They just, yeah. rightfully so, right? They're discussing yep. the investigation into the company and claims, and then the lawsuits are just you know, swirling around and some question whether Mr. Cohen had indeed died. And as, as you mentioned, I mean, it's all over the internet and perhaps maybe he faked his death. People are speculating on Twitter to pull off what is known as an exit scam, right? So you got this uh, professor over at Cornell University uh, named Dr. Edmund Gunsierer. hope I pronounced that right. Uh, he noted that various online sleuths have been searching for the blockchain a ledger that can be updated by decentralized networks for evidence of where Quadriga had stored its assets, but had found none, which raised a lot of red flags, right? So conspiracy theories are spiraling out of control. People are super pissed and justifiably so. And some are asking why he didn't even trust his wife with the keys. And it's kind of weird for me that his wife comes into this conversation because my question would be, how come his lawyers didn't have the keys, at least his legal team, for the company, he's got to have some. He's got to have some type of legal work. Everybody knows how many lawyers you need to run a business. And forget his wife. Forget. Forget what the, I don't know what these people are talking about that for. But does the CEO of Coca Cola really give the the secret sauce to his wife? I mean, that's not how things work. I, mean, I don't know what these people where these people get these stories from. But you know, I, my my question is, why didn't he at least give the keys to his lawyers, especially if he knew he was sick? And you and I, we've investigated a lot of frauds in, in our time, and so we're probably skeptical people, right? We're probably already by, yeah. we're suspicious of everybody, you know? So, but it doesn't sound right, right? It doesn't sound right. Yeah, no, I mean, I think the hard part is you, 
once you start giving that password to someone else, right, it becomes a security issue. And that's why I said you should be following best practices, which is large amounts of money should be in a custodial solution where there's a company, you know, 100% focused on storing those assets securely. And it means you're not going to get to the money as easily, right? So if you need it, it's going to take you, you know, two business days to get it out, things like that. But that's what the hot wallet's for. So the hot wallet stores a percentage of it. So say you have $200 million in there. What you should have done is set it up saying, I have a hot wallet that at any time, which is say has like 10 million in it, maybe 20 million, he picks a number that, you know, it allows him to trade and do the things he needs to. But like 180 million is secured in these third party custodians because then no matter what happens to them, at the end of the day, we can still get to the funds. We know where the funds are. And, you know, you have to go to court. There's going to be a lot of legal work around this kind of stuff, but you know where it is. What's right, happening right. right now is by people not doing that, we are not establishing the crypto world, the crypto asset investment world, like we do any other uh, investment arm. Like, you know, when you, when you trade a star stock, you go through a, 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 a broker dealer who's like certified to sell yours. And then they go through other areas as a custodial asset that confirms the assets there. It goes to a, a you know, a confirmed uh, buyer. I mean, there's a whole process of checks and balances to prevent things like the Bernie Madoff, right? Where I just bring money in, you believe it's there. I never did anything with it and I run. And in this case, it's really going to be hard to figure out whatever happened. Was the money even there? Did the person really pass away? Like what really happened? And now it's a big mess. And so when you're looking into this, you just got to look at things that mirror the way that current stock and exchanges run because that's going to be the best checks and balances. Now, sometimes it's going to take a little bit longer to do things. Things will be a little slower, but they're safer. And there's a reason for that. They put that in there because the checks, the balances, and when those things are missing and things go fast, they promise you the world is probably too good to be true, just like you and I have seen, George, many, many times in all of our investigations. Yeah, I mean, you know, the first thing that as an investigator that pops into my mind is if you have Crohn's disease, why are you going to India? <laughs> you know? Yeah, no. Yeah. So you look at even check, check this out. I mean, why are you not giving a backup key somewhere? If you know you're sick, you better make sure someone else has that. And and, and honestly, just for the the good of your customers, the good of everybody. So yeah, obviously suspect there. But again, the point on this one that I'm making is it was just poor practices from the beginning. It was, you know, it was a disaster waiting to happen. So it it gets worse, man. Quadriga's platform had about 363,000 users, according to the New York Times. And about 115,000 of them had balances in their accounts, about 180 million in cryptocurrency and 70 million in Canadian currency. The court documents state that the Times was able to get their hands on. So the exchange enabled trades of Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ether, plus other types of cryptocurrency. And the largest user claim was valued at about $70 million. I'm, I'm assuming that's one entity or person lost $70 million in, in this uh, disaster. Um, you know, it trades about in the middle of the pack, according to the website, coinmarket.cap. Um, also, does, you know, Ernst & Young has been hired to figure this out. Now, you said it's a disaster. I mean, imagine being the guy over at Ernst & Young trying <laughs> to figure this out, right? I mean, according to the initial report to the court, Ernst & Young wrote that it was facing an extraordinary set of case facts. I think that's an understatement. It said Quadriga had no discernible accounting system and no bank account. It said Mr. Cotton typically sent directions to release payments, which were made through third-party payment processors to employees by email, and payment inflows and outflows were not systematically tracked, according to the Ernst & Young report. So, I mean, is this a commonplace in the crypto market? And how is this going to hurt cryptocurrency markets in any way? Because now people, I'm, I'm sure they have to be guessing, you know, who, who they're doing business with, right? I think it's going to help. I think this is going to shed, it's going to shed light on what you want to look for. You want to make sure you're questioning things. Like when, like Bernie Madoff was a bad thing that happened, right? But it, it, it resulted in maturity and new rules and people asking the right questions. And, you know, then you, you make sure that there is an independent custodial uh, entity, often multiple, not just one, because you, you now know not to just go in and let a pyramid scheme happen or whatever, just poor, poor accounting practices, whatever it is that has these things fall down. So I think what's going to happen is this is going to cause a major investigation. 
obviously uh, lots of money lost, uh, you know, so Canada, probably the government will get involved, look at this. And I think you'll see some, some healthy rules come in saying, like, you can't do this. You can't just set something up with such poor practices. I mean, as we talk, the whole fact that we don't even know what was going on, no accounting system, passwords not available, all on one laptop that no one can get on that's encrypted, right? Um, no third party uh, like entities in there to make sure that we just have checks and balances. I mean, this was just a terrible, terrible setup, you know, and thank goodness it didn't get bigger before it happened. And even though it's a substantial amount, it could have been a lot, a lot worse. And I think this is a time when people start to say, okay, there is money to be made here. This is a, an amazing area to be in. This is like, you know, global trading 24 seven you know, very interesting area to be, but let's make sure we put the standard checks and balances in there and, and make this thing something that we can do. Yeah, no doubt. All right, folks, we've got to take a little time to go to commercial break, but we're right back to talk more cybersecurity with guest host of TS7 Radio and Chief Security Officer of BitGo, Mr. Tom Pagler. So, hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on LinkedIn by searching at Task Force 7 Radio and on Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio. For any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show, or suggestions for topics or guests, as well as other business communications, please email me directly at george.redis at taskforce7radio.com. That's george.redis at taskforce7, that's with the number 7, radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months. For more information on this much-needed and much-awaited for network, we're going to solve some problems together, folks. I promise you, Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause for a few minutes, and then guest host Tom Pager and I will be right back to talk more cybersecurity shop after these short messages from our awesome sponsors. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Recorded Future helps security teams make more confident decisions faster. Recorded Future's technology automates broad collection and analysis of cyber threat data and delivers the rich external context you need to understand alerts and emerging threats. With real-time threat intelligence from Recorded Future, security teams respond to threats 63% faster and find undetected threats 10 times quicker. Recorded Future integrates with the security products you already use, making the intelligence you need accessible and relevant. Use it to improve your security operations, incident response, vulnerability management, and more. If you're facing challenges like the cybersecurity skills shortage or more alerts than your team can handle, Consider Recorded Future Threat Intelligence. Learn more at recordedfuture.com forward slash task force seven. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. 
If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with the guest host of TS7 Radio and Chief Security Officer of BitGo, Mr. Thomas Pageler. So, Tom, according to an article on IT News dated February 9th, Switzerland's federal government has thrown down the virtual gauntlet and asked the public to hack its e-voting system in attempt at complying with the transparency requirements that it has for the whole platform. So it's called the PIT, the Public Intrusion Test. It's open to anyone, and it offers large cash rewards for those who find vulnerabilities and report them to the Swiss government. So individual vote manipulation that's undetectable by votes, and trusted auditors will earn testers a minimum of 30,000 Swiss francs and up to 50,000 Swiss francs if it's scalable to many different ballots. So there's a decent amount of money here at stake. And you and I did a, uh, a bug bounty uh, episode not too long ago. Actually, I'm thinking about putting it on the, uh, the encore for this month, actually. Yep. Yeah, because you know people love that. It's one of the most listened to episodes in TF7 Radio history. And people love this bug bounty stuff, right? So a smaller bug bounty of about 20,000 Swiss francs is paid for manipulation of individual votes after they've been cast. And then the alteration is detected by trusted auditors and they can actually see it. So the the elector privacy breaches earn hackers about 10,000 Swiss francs and vote corruption nets about 5,000 Swiss francs. The latter in, includes destruction of the electronic ballot box as well. So in total, 150,000 Swiss francs are on the table between February 25th to March 21st. Uh, 24th, excuse me, uh, Central European time and beyond a limited number of single-use voting cards required for the system, any number of participants are allowed to do this. So first, how, how safe do you think e-voting is? And do you think it's making its way here to the United States anytime soon? Well, it's already here. I mean, we've been doing e-voting in some format since 1960s, right? The, 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 the behind the voting is some kind of electronic system. It's more about, you know, as we've gone online and, and things have become more readily available in the e-voting, that's where I think the issues are. Uh, we do allow online voting. I think it's in like 25 states right now, but in very limited capacities, mostly for military, people who are overseas, that kind of thing. Uh, so it's definitely here. Uh, yeah, we don't have e-voting in the sense that they're doing it over there. Not They're, they're, they're going to, yeah, they're like but, 100%. Yeah. Right. But, but when we do have forms of obviously electronic uh, voting where, you know, some of these systems may or may not be connected to the internet. Some of these systems may be accessible by other devices. Yep. And we've had problems over here, a, a lot of problems and a lot of suspicions. I don't think a lot of people in the, in the American public trust our voting system right now because yeah. of the problems that we've had. I, I can't agree. imagine us going to this system, right? I mean, can, can you can you foresee that anytime soon? I think what they're doing is pretty interesting. And the reason I say that is uh, two things that they do that I, I really like is they're basically kind of taking an open, uh, open source approach to this. And the nice thing about open source is you could see the source code. Multiple people look at it. Um, it's always good to have, you know, they call it the two-eye rule. Then you can like do four-eye rule, whatever. Like it's more and more people on it, right? So I write the code. Someone else looks at it. Someone else looks at it. So, and the more eyes you get on, the more likely you're going to find issues, mistakes, things like that. This is like the, you know, hundreds of million I rule, right? I mean, it's, it's yeah. open to anybody. Come look at it. And honestly, it's pretty, pretty great because they're basically saying, come tell us, is there, you know, are there issues with it, anything like, anything like that? And then they're also doing the bug bounty, which is nice because you have a, a way to actually go look at it and make money off of it without worrying about going to the black market. And I think that's huge. So right now, if, you know, it was in the U.S., and let's just say that we were trying to roll something out, you know, uh, even if we opened it up and, and did this, like there's incentive for people to go dig in this and try to find holes and report them because you get paid for it. And also probably could use some kind of brag sheet saying, hey, I was one of the ones who found this bug that was in this, you know, it can lead to potential employment, stuff like that. I think this is a great approach, a great way to get a lot of eyes on the security and really make everybody kind of see it so you understand and then not worry about, you know, to protect source code, it's readily available. It's been checked a million times. We all know what it does. And you start to figure out the bugs, and, and you have a mechanism to pay people for it. 
So you think it's going to be helpful. How much of this 150,000 francs do you think are going to be left after this is done? I think zero. I think what's going to actually happen <laughs> is you're going to have to pay more money. But that's a good thing, right? I mean, like, people start reporting things in. They're going to find a bunch of issues. This will be great. So, I mean, it's a good problem to have if somebody comes in and says, hey, you know, we need more money for this. I mean, think about it, 150,000 uh, Swiss francs, whatever. Like, how many programmers, coders can you pay for in that? Not many, probably one, maybe two. Um, so, if you come back and it's like, hey, you know what? Even if this cost is a 10x, it's still the amount of people you got on that, you got more than 10 people full-time on this. I mean, it's a great way to spend money and get that much um, just sheer horsepower looking at this. So the Swiss government's saying that the e-voting system has already gone through more than 300 private testing sessions. Now, I'm not sure exactly what that means, if that's 300 you know, different entities or just two entities performing 300 tests or maybe more, you know, whatever the numbers consist of. But what kind of story do you think this is going to tell if hackers just pick the system apart? I mean, after yeah, you know, they, they spend all this money and then they, you know, they, they go for the bug bounty and then the people just destroy the, the, the system, right? You know, I don't, I, you know, it could happen. And I think if it does, it tells a story that they're actually doing the right thing. I, I, I think um, no matter what, it, every time you look at something, you can always probably find a way to improve it. You know, so the more people you get looking at things, the better it's going to be. I think that, uh, you know, actually, and you do this too, George, in, in, in my security world, right? I do pen testing. I do red team exercises. I do code reviews. I'm always changing it up. I have certain people who come in multiple times, but I'm always using different companies, different third parties. I mean, obviously we run bug bounty programs, things like that. Because I know that sometimes just somebody coming in and looking at it at a different angle will see something different that everybody else missed. And it just happens time after time. So I, I don't think it tells a bad story. It tells a story of it's really good to review, re-review, check again. What do we say in the Secret Service? Check it, check it twice, right? I mean, yeah. that's the kind of thing you always want to keep checking. And I don't think it's a bad story. In the larger story of bug bounties itself, do you think it's going to affect the way companies look at bug bounties these days? I know there's been some problems recently, and I haven't heard too much about them you know, since those issues. I think people are sort of treading carefully. But you know, what do you think about the, the overall bug bounty market? What's, what's it going to do for that? I think it's going to be great because now we're going to have a government involved in bug bounties. I mean, one of the issues is, like you said, bug bounties kind of emerged from private industry finding a way. Now you've got a legitimate government saying, hey, this is a good program. We can make this happen. And this could give more legitimacy to bug bounties. We can see how they do it. Now you've got a government entity that did it. You can, you can basically mimic and say, I run my program like this. Therefore, this is a good program. Very cool. Very cool. So I think I am going to put that up as the Encore episode, uh, you know, what we I talked think, about. Yeah. I think it'd be great. Yeah, yeah it'd be a really good one. Yeah, cause, uh, and we're going to do another episode on it too, I think, because, you know, especially after we see what happens with this, it's going to be very interesting. So I want to switch gears again. We got, you know, a lot of different talk, topics on this episode. So in a recent CNBC article that came out this past Saturday by our good friend and former TF7 radio guest, Kate Fazzini, you know, Kate's been on this show a lot. You know Kate, right? Yeah, she's great. Yeah. She's awesome, right? So Google's head of internet security says businesses should ignore cyber scare tactics and learn from the history of cybersecurity events. So in this exclusive conversation with Kate at, at CNBC, Heather Atkins, the Google's head of security and privacy, says businesses have more to learn about their own insecurity from the history of cybersecurity than from frightening headlines or scary pitch decks from vendors. Right? And so in the interview, Atkins says that the attacks, methods, motivations, tools, and even criminals themselves are the same as they've been since the 1980s. Now, in some ways, you know, she's got a point, doesn't she? Yeah, I actually think Google does a very good job with security. I think, uh, you know, Heather's running a great program over there. Yeah. Uh, lots of white noise, lots of snake oil coming out. And I don't think it's necessarily bad and people trying different things. But there's a couple things. One is I agree with her. I think risk-based approach and good hygiene. If, you know, just follow the prices we always have. But one area I think which is interesting to me that she missed is she did talk about, you know, changing passwords. And she didn't talk about the FIDO Alliance or like YubiKeys. And I know Google helped uh, to develop that whole system and they use them predominantly there. I, I think that is an area that's a little bit different because it's kind of getting away from just the password. You actually have to touch a, a hardware device. So I'd have to put a password in and then, then actually tap the device. So you'd have to know that I'm actually there at my screen. And I think that's amazing. But again, what's cool about that was it wasn't like 
some random security vendor doing it. It was a group of industry experts, you know, like PayPal was in there, uh, Google was in there, multiple, multiple companies coming together and agreeing on a standard that we'd all push out together that would allow us to have a more secure approach. It's, it's an interesting miss on her part. I, I, I don't know why it wasn't mentioned because it's such a great thing that uh, Google's uh, helped champion. Uh, but again, it's kind of just you know the same idea around the password. You're kind of changing it. It was kind of adding an element to it. I think that would be a good example where you, you do change things, uh, but as an industry coming together and finding something. Other than that, though, I do agree with her. You know, RSA is coming up. Uh, I'm you know a little bit hesitant to be up there too much because I think there's almost too many vendors at this point. Too much white noise. I know what I want to go talk about and who I want to talk to. I'm going to try to get in, and get out. Yeah. Well, the TF7 network's going to solve that problem for you. <laughs> we'll get into that on another episode. But I, you know, you're right. Heather runs a great shop over there. She's a she's a you know very very well respected professional in the information security business. And I don't think we can underestimate the effect that emerging technologies have made in the cybersecurity space. And I mean, in some cases, how much easier it's made things for criminals. Like let's, we could just take the simplest uh, things, like like encryption, for instance. I mean, how much easier is it now? for criminals to speak to each other in a secure fashion than it was, you know, 10, 15 years ago. I mean, they can get out, you know, it's very, very difficult uh, to penetrate these conversations now. Would you agree? Yeah, no, I, I think that there's, it's funny, some of the good things uh, that I think are great, like encryption, like you mentioned, it's great on, on uh, you know, for the, for the good guys trying to protect things. I now can encrypt data, the bad guys can't get to it, stuff like that. I've got, you know, uh, secure channels to, communicate, you know, so that the bad guys can't figure out what I'm talking about. But again, then the bad guys take it over, right? Now they start using it. It's hard to understand what they're doing because it's all encrypted. We can't see what they're doing. And then what they also do is they have, you know, ransomware. They're encrypting the, the stuff uh, and, and make it so you have to pay them to get your stuff unlocked. So, you know, it, it's a great point. Here's something that came out, almost a cat and mouse game, right? It's like, um, here's a tool that you can use to protect yourself. And then shortly thereafter, here's how the tool that was made to protect yourself now is a threat to you that you have to now put into your uh, whole situation and, and look out for. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, was, I was thinking about what she said, you know, she makes a really good point and, and, and you know, to a, to a certain degree kind of makes us feel silly as an industry to some, some respect. Right. I mean, in the file analysis, the motivation of the criminals seems to remain the same and it's, it's remained consistent throughout the decades and the method of attacking the weakest link in the chain like hotels, for instance, like recently, like, you know, to get national security information. I mean, we, everyone's sort of said that, like, hey, look, this is a, this, look at this attack vector, you know, uh, you know, stay frosty, you know, it's coming, you know what I'm saying? But yeah, I think that's remained consistent for quite some time now, but people maybe, I don't know if this has fallen on deaf ears, people are not listening, because we've had some huge fails in this space when these guys are just trying to get this, we know they're getting this, well, they want this certain type of information, we know their motivations behind it, Right, then we know they're going to attack the weakest link. We've identified the weakest link, and then boom, they do it anyway. Right? I, I don't know. What do you think? No, I agree, and I, I think it's a backup to kind of uh, what was said in the article is that risk-based approach. Right? No, know, know what kind of data you have, classify your data so that you know what the most sensitive, most pertinent data is, and then put proper governance around that data to secure it. So if you know if I'm Coca-Cola and it's that secret you know recipe that makes my soda sell beyond anyone else's soda, by golly, that's the most secure thing I have out there, right? If it's uh, I'm a, I don't know, maybe a pharma company creating a new drug, whatever it be, identify that thing that you got to protect and put the most you can around that, and then not worry as much about the other stuff, knowing that you know you you can you can mitigate that in other ways. Don't try to get this thing that's going to be the end-all, be-all, protect everything because I just haven't seen it yet. All right, so I want to I want to switch gears and, and, and grab one more subject, you know, for this uh, segment uh, in this episode. So, you know, switching gears once again. I was reading this article, uh, stated February tenth, two thousand nineteen, on Wired dot com about government employees scrambling to mitigate the impacts of this, you know, uh, shutdown that just happened. And these are all cybersecurity uh, employees assigned to defend these networks, these government networks. And it just, you know, it just hit me. I know you and I are both obviously former uh, uh, government employees and we know what it's like and we, we, we know both sides of the fence in the public and private sectors. But these furloughed cybersecurity employees return to expired software licenses and web encryption certificates. I mean, colleagues were burned out from working on skeleton crews throughout the shutdown 
and they had weeks worth of unanalyzed network activity logs. I mean, can you imagine the headache? The jobs are already hard enough without having to play catch up. And this atmosphere of chaos and frustration is just being portrayed throughout the media. So, you know, I wanted to get your thoughts. I mean, we both work for the G. Could you imagine being furloughed for a month and then coming back to a mess like this? I mean, I'm, I'm actually just appalled that this was not considered a critical job. That's a horrible right. message the government sent out. As you know, Secret Service agents work through, through the uh, government shutdown. You know, critical positions do. And the fact that we furloughed our cybersecurity experts is just absolutely appalling. So I don't even know how to go on to the other topics after that because I wouldn't even know how to begin to like handle that. We just sent such a horrific message out there that cybersecurity really doesn't matter at our government levels. Yeah, I mean, look, it's no secret that government uh, employees or, or cybersecurity employees are struggling in a sense to maintain a robust and consistent defense and depth cybersecurity posture compared to some of their private sector colleagues, right? So I was, I was looking at this May report that came out the, from the White House's Office of Management and Budget that found that 74% of federal agencies are in urgent need of digital defense improvements. So more than half don't have the ability to catalog the software that runs on their system. So like, you know, basic cybersecurity hygiene 101, right? You don't even know what you have. I mean, how can you protect it? Right. And only about 25% of agencies confirmed to OMB that they are prepared to identify and thoroughly assess signs of data breaches. So they're behind the eight ball already. And then you got to take a month off. You're coming in and you're seeing incidents that happened three weeks ago. And you're trying to mitigate incidents. You know, you're, you're opening up a cert on something that happened three weeks ago and you still have them coming in nonstop. I mean, in the future, if there would be a government shutdown, shouldn't the government consider how this affects cybersecurity personnel in certain agencies? I mean, it's just absolutely horrific. I mean, I know you, you, you basically, you know, agree with me and said the point, but man. Well, I think just, the blowback's worse because if I was in that position, you know, George, you and I have worked for the government, I, I would be so frustrated and overwhelmed. And probably that month that I had off, I was already applying for jobs outside because what else am I going to do? And I, I don't. You know, the government is great because it's, you know, the, the one guarantee you have is a paycheck coming in. That didn't happen for a month. So, you know what, I'm going to apply elsewhere. And when someone else says, we're going to hire you in the private sector at more money and, you know, obviously a more guaranteed paycheck at this point, um, and I don't have to deal with that mess, I'm going to leave. So, unfortunately, we're probably going to lose some of the top guys because the, the guys and girls, yep. you know, the people who the, the people who are probably the best in there who applied are going to get picked up by private sector in other areas. And, you know, it's just unfortunate. Honestly, you know, to go even to a higher level, we continue to pay our senators and congressmen and everything through the government shutdown. I don't know why we don't just try to get a law that says there's no more government shutdowns. If you don't agree to a budget, you continue on last year's budget until, um, until you get it figured out. Then you wouldn't have to worry about this stuff because we'd at least continue. Just say, hey, the budget remains the same until you can agree on it. And in worst case scenario, no raises or anything like that. At least the paycheck keeps coming in. We can keep these things running and we keep the stuff open. I don't know why they're not looking at that. I don't know. That sounds too commonsensical to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, but yeah, you know, the effects of the shutdown extend to the agencies that were funded throughout the shutdown, like the military and the intelligence community. They got hit too because they have interdependencies, right? Yep. And they have stakeholders on, on, on and other network connections between these agencies that were, were hit by the shutdown. Yep. So, you know, one of the few public-facing impacts of the shutdown was that web encryption certificates from numerous federal websites expired during this weeks of pause. Yeah. So, you know, that basically meant that people were trying to access the sites. And one of the, one of the sites mentioned in, in the article here is NASA's rocket testing portal. And, it, <laughs> you know, and they got warnings in browsers that their pages were unsafe because their certificates were expired and then the sites became completely inaccessible altogether. So... I don't think that G did anything to help themselves here in terms of their cybersecurity defense and death posture. I mean, this is a cybersecurity show, so we're just talking about cybersecurity and we don't want to get into the whole, you know, other, yeah. you know, yeah. thousand yeah. things yeah. that affected the, yeah. that were affected by the shutdown. Just want to talk cybersecurity here, but when do you think the government's going to wake up and realize that they're going to have to spend some money here to match the cybersecurity defense capabilities that finance and the telecommunications sectors have? Uh, unfortunately, I think it's going to take a massive attack. You know, we saw a significant spend after Pearl Harbor, after 9-11. I mean, these things that actually wake you up. So I think at some point, some critical system going to come down that's going to cause significant either economic or, um, you know, uh, unfortunately, maybe a loss of life impact. 
and you're going to see a massive uh, response, probably more money than you know you, you'd see in any private sector, and you know great response. Uh, you know, unfortunately, we're going to have to suffer something to get that. I mean, that's just that's just horrible, right? I mean, you know, I, you're not yep. the only one that said that. I think actually, and this was 70 episodes ago, but I think in the pilot episode, Secretary Chertoff mentioned the fact that. Yep. You know, you might have to have a loss of life incident for people to actually take cybersecurity seriously. And that's just a shame. I mean, for once, it would be nice to get out in front of that to prevent that from ever happening. So we could say, hey, look, we've never had a cybersecurity major event here in the United States that, that, that resulted in the mass loss of life. But, uh, I mean, it's just, it's just frustrating. You know, it's very frustrating. And uh, hopefully, you know, this show will help bring attention to this kind of thing. And, and, and more and more, we're going to have a voice. Yeah. And in uh, doing just that, I think you're right, George. Honestly, like uh, I said, unfortunately, a massive attack. The other thing is shows like this getting the word out there, and people actually telling their their congressmen, their senators, "Look, this isn't okay. I, I do not. I'm not okay with this." And start you know start calling them, telling them like we should we should start saying, "I want to be secure. I want to make sure that you know the the systems that are going online every day are secure." And that, you know, when I get on an airplane or, you know, I, I do this or do that, I know everything behind that is as secure as it can be because the government backs it. And I think that's what we need. All right, folks, we've got to take another short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away. Tom and I will be right back to break down the role of physical security in securing our data. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Recorded Future helps security teams make more confident decisions faster. Recorded Future's technology automates broad collection and analysis of cyber threat data and delivers the rich external context you need to understand alerts and emerging threats. With real-time threat intelligence from Recorded Future, security teams respond to threats 63% faster and find undetected threats 10 times quicker. Recorded Future integrates with the security products you already use, making the intelligence you need accessible and relevant. Use it to improve your security operations, incident response, vulnerability management, and more. If you're facing challenges like the cybersecurity skills shortage or more alerts than your team can handle, Consider Recorded Future Threat Intelligence. Learn more at recordedfuture.com forward slash task force seven. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with my guest host of TS7 Radio and Chief Security Officer BitGo, Mr. Thomas Pageler. So, Tom, I want to get a little bit into physical security in this last segment uh, of the show. And you know, we were both Secret Service agents. We both had to deal with security risk. 
of both the digital world and the logical world at the same time, most of the time, it's at the same time, when we're protecting the president and protecting the, the financial critical infrastructure. So, but in, in today's world, I kind of feel like the focus is very much on the digital world and everything is, everything is online. And that's probably because of IOT. And I mean, it's just everything. I mean, what, it, it, everything in your house is online, your lights, your blinds, your refrigerator, you know, I had a TV in my refrigerator not too long ago. I mean, it was hooked up to the internet. I mean, I, you know, even the fans in your home can be online. I have a rental property where I have a heated driveway that, that I could VPN into and manage the driveway from anywhere in the world, depending on, you know, what the commercial sensor says that's hooked up to the driveway, it predicts the possibility of potential snowfall. So it's really high speed, low drag stuff, man. And this is just a small example of, what's online in the world we live in today. And when you think about it, I mean, just a short time ago, I'd like to think it was a short time ago, it was a long time ago in college. I mean, I didn't even have a cell phone. I mean, we did just fine, but wow, how fast we've come and how fast we're going to go into the future. It's just going to pick up. And so the island world's awesome, right? It's really super convenient. We can tr control almost every aspect of our life from anywhere in the world. And we can often talk about the, these risks, these new emerging risks, and these new emerging technologies that that have introduced, you know, this, you know, I think risks that people haven't really thought about into our environments, but primarily focusing on logical security, and then and and then even so, the results are a mixed bag at best, right? It's kind of a mixed bag. The outcome, I gotta ask you and get your opinion on this: Are we falling short by not giving physical security its due attention? I mean, do we need to go full out? gangster here and just go old school and start securing things offline. I, I, I don't know if you think, you know, I was, you know, if you look back at some of the, you know, the, the agencies, uh, our Intel agencies and some of the documentaries, they'll, you'll see, they'll say, oh, we can close that air gap. You know, we can penetrate that air gap easy, but I'm not sure about that. What do you think? Uh, no, I think honestly what we talked about in the, the first segment here um, is exactly why we need to go offline on some stuff. So when we talk about custodial solution, I had mentioned before, that's actually taking these, uh, you know, passwords, the keys, uh, you know, to the to the uh, the digital asset and putting it offline. So what you're doing is you're moving it to some kind of removable media, and then you're doing just like you would any other physical security, and you're storing it, you know, in a bank grade vault, underground, that kind of stuff, you know, geo distributed, and and not something you can go attack. So if I'm online, I can't find it. It's a whole, um, also the discussion around the YubiKey I talked about, right? I mean, that, that thing that you have to actually physically push. It's, a, it's, it's that bringing physical elements in to the online world. So you, you not only have to go and hack and, and try to get into a system and compromise it, you also have to go get multiple users, multiple hardware devices, things that are not available online. So I, I can't just do this remotely from some other country. We need to start looking back at physical security. And like you said, keeping it old school, start saying, okay, what can we bring offline um, and, and secure in a different way? So even if you come and open our system, compromise, do all this stuff, you can't get to the, the, the necessary goods that um, you know, are, are the most sensitive to us, and especially those that aren't needed a lot. So, well, let's get to that, right? So how should we start the process of what should be air-gapped, right, and stored on a network that is not logically attached to the public internet, and what doesn't necessarily need to be air-gapped? Well, I don't even think it needs to be stored on a network, not part of it. What I'm saying is, if you, and we mentioned this in another segment, this is great, it's tying everything together, you know, the whole data governance I mentioned, right? So if you look at it and say, okay, what is my most important thing? So I'm going to do a data discovery, like, what kind of data do I have out there? Just what do I have? I have personal identifiable information. Again, like the Coca-Cola example, I've got the, you know, the secret uh, recipe to my soda. Uh, you know, I've got uh, maybe just some stuff that just doesn't matter, like stuff that's not as important. And so what I need to do is do that whole data classification um, after that. So I've discovered all the data and then I classify and say, okay, what's the most important, what's the least important? And then put governance around it. And, and the governance of the most sensitive, most important stuff might be where you actually start thinking physically securing it. So in the Coca-Cola example, how often do they need to look at that formula? Probably never. The systems are all set up. They all do their thing. So why is that? Why would that ever be online? I don't know if it is, but it shouldn't be. That should be stored right. somewhere safe, you know, offline, 
you know, maybe written on paper. If you need something electronic, maybe it's some kind of thing that you can scan, like a, you know, a, a QR reader image or something like that. Maybe it's shards of a key, so you, you, you're separating the, the key out into multiple things. But you're, you're actually starting to take those things offline because you don't need them. And, and even in the example we had with the individual of Canada, you know, who uh, could have gone with a custodial solution, you know, maybe they would have lost $10 million if, if he couldn't, they couldn't get to the hot wallets, but the custodial solution would have like 190 million still available in the safes through actually coming offline on digital keys, you know, stored in vaults. And so you look at saying, okay, so you suffered some, but you didn't suffer at all. You only lost, you know, 10% as opposed to the hundred percent. That's what we need to start thinking about. And, and to your point with government and stuff, like the really extremely sensitive stuff, like are you working, um, you know, informants in other countries, you know, who are our top people, those kind of things. Why would you ever put that online? That should be offline. And then what you do is you have a method to go get to that stuff and a, a communication channel to go let it know when it's needed. So going through this risk adjusted process seems uh, logical. It seems commonsensical and sometimes, and sometimes it, it seems rather simplistic, but when you consider things like GDPR and other regulatory compliance laws, doesn't that really, you know, I mean, make this process and this exercise much more sophisticated? It might actually, right? it could make it, it could make it easier as long as you account for that in your, in your data discovery, data classification. So what you do is, you know, as long as when you're looking at it and say, okay, um, again, you classify and say, okay, so this, this falls into GDPR. So right to yeah. be forgotten, but something like that. Pe- most people are just trying to get in line with GDPR still. So I mean, you know, <laughs> no, you, no. that's a I, huge I, assumption, right? That oh, everybody's just got everything classified the way GDPR, you know, recommends. So, so but in, in that case, George, what I would do is I would say, okay, so I'm not going to take my PII offline yet. I'm going to do other safeguards to make it so you can't get to it. Maybe the keys to the database set that holds it, make it more difficult to get to it. But you know, GDPR is not going to tell Coca-Cola they can't store their um, secret sauce offline, right? That's theirs. They own that. Or uh, they're not going to tell, you know, uh, government agencies you can't store your, your sensitive data offline. I mean, think about the things that are basically, I, want to, I call it like business over breaches. Why would you ever have that online if you can avoid it? And business right. over to me would be Coca-Cola losing their secret sauce and then everybody can make Coke, right? Uh, g- you know, uh, losing your informants, like you suddenly wouldn't have uh, an operation for the government, right? Because you've lost them all. Those kind of things. Like, is there something like, um, if you're, uh, you know, in my case, BitGo, right? We, we have offline storage for a reason. We can't lose those funds. We lose those funds. No one's going to trust us. They're not going to come to us, right? Think about what that thing is and start going old school physical security, bank grade vaults, you know, geo-distributed, uh, need to know basis only, uh, multiple people needing to come together to, you know, to uh, constitute a key that can allow you to get in there, uh, you know, passwords, bio readers, all those things, and a really good complex way of getting to it. Because uh, even though it will slow things down, that's good. Slow sometimes and secure is better than fast when it's not needed. And I think we're just such a world that we're so used to instant gratification, getting everything as fast as we want. Speed. It's okay to slow down. Yeah, it's okay to slow down. It's okay. So look, high level, if we're just talking high level to wrap up this conversation around physical security, from a physical security perspective, what, what are the some of the more commonsensical guidance you can give and recommend to professionals to put in place to protect their digital assets? I mean, I, I think it's exactly, I think the number one thing I would say is understanding what data could cause business to be over. I mean, even a, a loss of PII, as bad as it is, major fine, stuff like that, you'll probably survive it, right? It's, it's bad for the brand. It's bad for consumers, stuff like that. But is there something that you absolutely cannot survive? And then start thinking about a way to get that offline and secured. And once you get that right, and you know that you can do that, you can start working down the stack saying, okay, that worked well with you know, uh, the Coca-Cola recipe. Then you can say, you know what, we can actually do this with other areas and maybe we won't go to the extreme we did with the Coca-Cola, but we can take certain things offline. So it makes it a little bit more difficult to get to that. So if I have a database with you know, personal identifiable information, maybe I actually take the keys, shard it out, put them on removable media. You have to actually go reconstitute those to go then into the database. So it's not as secure as maybe the offline you know, storage of my secret recipe, but I am now taking those principles and putting them in and adding that extra step that you cannot do remotely from another country 
as you, you know, try to attack because you actually have to be physically there in person to go get those assets and it just makes that bit more difficult. Hey, Tom, thanks for bouncing with me, brother. I appreciate it. I mean, you hey. got to come on more often. We're going to get Paul to come on us with us. With us yeah, again. definitely. That was a good show. And, hey, I really yeah. appreciate you having me on so much. I really love this. This is great stuff. Yeah, it's a lot of fun, right? <laughs> All right, folks. We, gotta, we run out of time once again. But before I go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.